You are listening to Golden Voices. My name is Rob Caldor and this is Golden Voices by Montefiore. It is my privilege to explore the world of Montefiore. Today is a very special episode where we talk about dementia. It is not the easiest subject to talk about, but something that is incredibly important and relevant. Later in the episode, we speak with Fran Glamorgan, who is the Senior Dementia Consultant at Montefiore, about what dementia is and issues associated with the diagnosis. First up, we speak with the amazing Norm Laurie. Norm has been a volunteer at Montefiore for many years, but today we speak to him about the very personal story that he went through when his wife Maggie was showing signs of dementia. How long has Maggie been living at Montefiore? Maggie has now been in the SCU secure care unit at Monty for just over two and a quarter years. Maggie was diagnosed with dementia some years ago, in fact, a form of dementia, Alzheimer's, and that kind of goes back about four to five years. But actually, we, we noticed, and when I say we, I mean my daughter and I, we noticed all kinds of strange behaviours going way, way back to the early 2000s with Maggie. So we've been kind of on the lookout and reading up about it and, you know, trying to find a path for some time. So it it seems like a journey we've been on for many years. What kind of symptoms and things were you noticing? They were behavioural, anger, forgetting things, but not... Not saying, oh, well, I've forgotten something, I'm sorry. More getting angry at the fact that things had been misplaced or she couldn't remember where to go. She couldn't remember places, couldn't remember people. And and the first reaction was anger. Do you think that anger came from just frustration? Yes, very much so. I think there are different stages leading into Alzheimer's or dementia And I think one of them is a realisation that something is happening and you don't know what it is and you can't control it. And the first thing is to fight out and to say, this is not happening to me. And I remember having many discussions with Maggie about her medical condition and she would get very angry if anyone used the word dementia in her presence. She was aware that something was going on. She didn't want to accept it. And why would you? I mean, it's a horrible reality. We saw signs of that going way, way back in into the early 2000s. And then in 2007, I took Maggie on a trip to Wales. And we stayed with friends, an old colleague of mine. And even before we got there, she was in a high state of tension. It was all to do with her mobile phone, being able to get a SIM and the urgency of it all. We went out for dinner and then I woke up to hear her standing on the stairs outside our bedroom and then she fell. And she fell about 10 metres, head first into a slate floor. Within an hour, there was an ambulance there and she was taken to Abercaverney Hospital. And from that moment on, things only got worse. Okay, so the fall was sort of the final straw that triggered things. I mean, were you had you seen a doctor with regards to her condition at the at that stage? No, not before, because she had a relationship with uh, a local doctor that seemed to be going okay. 
but there was substantial trauma in the fall. She lost vision in one of her eyes, landed uh, on one arm and on the side of her head, and there was a contortion of the arm and a loss of vision. We came back to Australia and I immediately got her some relief from the very ordinary operation that she'd had in Wales and of course started to then have a closer relationship with her doctor but her doctor seemed to be reluctant to have her diagnosed. This went on for quite a few years. We have a daughter who's a naturopath so she's very interested in the medical side of things, the scientific side of things and she and I have been monitoring Maggie's behaviour and the big breakthrough was when I was able to convince Maggie to come and see my doctor and he thought yeah something's not right here and sent her over to an expert at Concord Hospital. Okay seeing the right doctor and getting a diagnosis or at least a status is very important. It's critically important because you're not really in the picture, in the frame, until you've had that diagnosis. Once you've had that diagnosis, then a lot of things click into place, including the possibility of getting some help. And by help, I'm also including financial assistance, which is really important because when you're living with someone with dementia, it's very draining and you need a lot of help. It's going to test every fibre of your body. You're, you're not sure that when your partner walks out the door that he or she is going to come back again. And until you've been diagnosed, you're still driving a car. That can be very frightening. You need to get that diagnosis as quickly as you can. As soon as you then lock into the system, all kinds of things are available to you. What about what was her reaction once she got the official diagnosis? Denial. I had to tread very carefully. I'd taken a lot of steps before that because I saw the writing on the wall to make sure that I had things like legal guardianship. I was looking after our finances, uh, that I had all of Maggie's paperwork in my hands, you know, birth certificate, passport, etc, etc, etc. You need to have that power of attorney moving forward. So that's one of the first things that you need to do. You, you need to make sure that you can sign for your partner and that you can take responsibility for their care. Now that must also put pressure on your relationship because the nature of it had changed from a, I'd imagine, a, a relatively even partnership through to you being fully responsible. Absolutely. And, you know, my... My wife is, uh, is and was very proud, so she saw parts of that as being very demeaning and I had to walk a tightrope and make sure that I was caring for her in a way that didn't make her feel in any way inferior. That care became more and more and more intense. And that's one of the, the first hurdles that you have to jump over. You have to decide when you need to bring other people in to help you. One of the things they tell you as a partner of someone living with dementia is you have to take care of yourself. If you don't take care of yourself, you're not much good as a carer. So you had to put things in place that gave you respite and also meant that you had your own life that wasn't just around her care but you actually had something else 
I had people coming to our house to do a full diagnosis and make recommendations. And once I was able to get some government assistance, some funding, I was able to get people to come in a couple of times a week, spend time with Maggie so I could go out. It says a lot about your commitment, but also I think recognising that you need time is pretty important. Well, I was very lucky. I mentioned my daughter before and she was pivotal in reminding me, hey, Dad, you've got to look after yourself. You've got to keep your life together. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to help mum. I took that advice to heart and made sure that my commitments, whether they were with Monty or keeping up with my friends, my interests in playing golf, music, my volunteering, didn't suffer as a result of the care and attention that I had to give Maggie. What are some of the common misconceptions people may have about dementia? Because we've got these blanket definitions, you know, dementia means you've got long-term memory, but you don't have short-term memory. That's one of them. They assume that the person they're talking to has long-term memory that is like a person without dementia. That's not true. It's very selective. And the other thing that I've found bringing people in and out to see Maggie and observation over the years is that people don't understand that when you're talking to a person with dementia, you can't ask open-ended questions. How are you? You'll get the answer that is foremost of mine without that person thinking about it. If I ask uh, Maggie now... I'm putting on some nail polish. Do you want red or blue? She'll say blue. And I'll say, okay, just let me check. You want blue or red? She'll say red. So it's a very different kind of conversation you have with someone who has dementia, with someone who hasn't. One of the strategies you've mentioned there when you're dealing with someone with dementia is limit the open-ended questions. Any other strategies that can help I suppose both with their happiness and your satisfaction with the discussions. My background was in the music industry and just quite separately from anything to do with Maggie, I was on a board with other music publishers trying to get music into the hands of people with dementia without having to pay fees. Mm. So we know our way through the music industry and we were trying to work out how we could work with record companies and publishing companies to make all of that possible. So what I'm saying is we know the importance, the value of music and memory. So I use music all the time with Maggie. In fact, a large percentage of the time that I'm with her, I'm singing rather than talking. And she can relate to the music Often she will come in and sing the choruses with me to songs that I think she may have forgotten. It's a weird thing. There's a lot of work that's been done on it. But people do have parts of the brain that connect music and memory. Focusing on music, it's something that really resonated with her. Very much so. It puts her in a happy place. It puts her in a place where she doesn't feel... I can sense, you know, she doesn't know what's going on. I've even felt her heartbeat amplify when I have music that she relates to. And it's very important that people use music in that way. But it's not a blanket thing. You've got to know your partner and you've got to know which music they relate to and what makes them happy.
what about photographs and videos and things like that? I use photographs uh, all the time, but they are less effective. And Maggie will often feign knowing someone in a photograph when I know that she can't remember them. Maybe for other people, that's different. But Maggie, like me, has a musical background. And it, it was very clear from the outset that I would have to use music more and more as a way of communicating. In fact, she was sent a tablet from Hammond Care and some Bluetooth speakers, which is kept by the staff, and we use that all the time. There must have been a stage where it became more obvious that you just couldn't look after her at home anymore? I worked in partnership with our daughter, but it was becoming obvious that Maggie was a full-time job. We now had the extra problem of incontinence, which is something that often comes with dementia. And whereas in the early days she'd loved having dinner with me, sitting down, eating her food, suddenly she wasn't eating well. She wasn't sleeping as well. I was concerned about her leaving the house. She would often take a suitcase, empty, walk out the front door, and often I would get a call from a neighbour saying, I've just seen Maggie walking up to the park. You may want to get up there. You know, I was living on tenterhooks. I mean, you don't really want to live in a house that's locked Mm. all the time. I would often drive the car or walk up and get her. She'd give me a big smile. She saw nothing strange about walking out of the house carrying a suitcase. By this stage, we'd stopped her from driving. She walked home one day having had a car crash. The car was a write-off, and luckily neither she nor the other passengers in the other car were hurt, but the car was a write-off, and I said to her quietly, I think maybe that we shouldn't be driving anymore, and she agreed. I was getting messages from... The different people at Mabel who were coming in and taking her out for coffee and going for drives and walks, that it was becoming very unhappy, less content. Previously, she'd been happy to sit in a cafe over a cup of coffee for hours, but now it was becoming difficult. And I thought, well, I need some help. So my daughter and I checked out a number of places, as well as Montefiore. I also talked to somebody who was in a dementia care facility up in Brisbane and she gave me a couple of very good tips. She said, "Look, don't look for a place with lovely views out the window of the beach. The things that are important are communication, communication with you, and the number of carers and resident nurse in the facility. So we looked at one place, for example, in North Taramara. There was no nurse there and I, I said to the woman showing us around where's the nurse oh she's in the other center down the road but she does come over here from time to time that's not what you're looking for you need to have a full-time nurse there 24 7 and the more carers that you've got on site the better and when i see the number of people who now come in podiatrists occupational therapists music therapists carers who help maggie with her bathing and dressing every day I just don't know how I would have coped with all these different roles. I have some friends who have their partners at home, but I don't know how they do it. They almost don't have a life of their own. Seems like a fine balance to get right and also changing all the time. A heads up for anyone listening to this. There's probably not a worse day in your life than the day that you bring your partner into residential care. You feel like a traitor. 
you're carrying a little suitcase, your partner is saying, why am I going here? Why are you leaving me? It is the pits. It's the bottom. But it really does get better. I could never have given Maggie the care and attention that she gets now at Montefiore. The most telling things, I come and visit Maggie a couple of times a week. And at Monty, they have regular concerts and various activities, both in and out of the SCU. And one day I was sitting with Maggie at a concert and I could see she was flagging a bit. And I said, are you getting a bit tired? And she said, and I quote, I think I should go home now. And what she meant by home was the secure care unit. It was a huge breakthrough and very comforting because she does really regard where she is now as a home. She has her room, she has her bathroom. It's a very different kind of care at uh, Montefiore in Randwick to anywhere else that I've seen in that there's an open dining room area, an open kitchen area. Residents can eat together, they can move around together, sit down on couches, chairs, watch television, listen to music, be involved in different activities. And so there's a real freedom there. I'm really, really lucky in that whatever Maggie is involved in, when I go into the care unit, she immediately looks up at me, smiles and jumps up, wraps her arms around me and whispers something in my ear along the lines of, I'm so glad you're here or I love you. And that is so important because there are people with dementia who don't remember their loved ones. And that can be, I can only imagine how horrible that must be for them. But I'm still at the stage where Maggie recognises who I am, recognises my name and is happy to go along with anything that I say. So it makes it so much easier for me to come and go. Anyone who has experienced a family member or friend with dementia will no doubt relate to much of what Norman just recounted. To get a broader view of dementia, I asked Fran Glamorgan, the Senior Dementia Consultant at Montefiore, what is dementia? Dementia is an umbrella term. It is not one specific illness, but rather a symptom of disorders that have affected the brain. So you'll hear that people have Alzheimer's, that's a form of dementia. There's hundreds of types of dementia. Each have their own characteristics based on what parts of the brain are affected. Alzheimer's is the most common form of dementia. For many of our listeners, they'd be wondering, how do you find out if you or someone close to you potentially has dementia? What's the first step? So it would be that you're noticing changes in them that is impacting with their daily life, meaning that they might get lost. They might stop preparing meals or changing clothes or showering. And so the next step to get a definitive diagnosis is you have to see a doctor to have that diagnosis. What sort of testings do the doctors do? So they will do scans of the brain to be able to see what's happening, what parts of the brain are affected. And it also means that they can rule out other causes that may not actually be dementia. You know, if someone is experiencing delirium because they have an infection, it can show similar symptoms to what you would see with dementia, but it would be short-term, not long-term. So it's important that the doctors diagnose dementia because they can actually link you up with support services at that time. They can also discuss the type of dementia or at least where the brain, parts of the brain are affected because obviously they're going to be different depending on what area is affected. You might have somebody who can remember everybody's names but they can't plan and they can't see risk and so they get impulsive and that's 
that's a risk to their safety, but they may still remember everybody they speak to in their names. So bringing it back to how can we care for somebody or how can we look after them after they've had that diagnosis and they're quite upset, it'll be a day-by-day thing. It'll be reassurance. It'll be letting them grieve, letting them cry. And it might be that there's some people that can't retain it and if you were going to remind them of the diagnosis it wouldn't do them any good it would make them quite upset and distressed or there's some people that want to talk about it every day and even if they ask the same questions it's important to listen and answer and I'd say the biggest thing is probably supporting them throughout letting them know that they are not alone and you're not going to let something bad happen to them and that you're with them through this. How important is family support at this stage? Family is really important and it's important that they have familiar things around to keep somebody feeling safe and secure. So having photos and going through those albums and talking about the things they recognise and remember is actually very validating to somebody and reassuring. I imagine it's issues with long-term and short-term memory. Sometimes the long-term memory is still there for a long, long time. That's right. They are much more likely, and this is generally speaking, but much more likely to remember their childhood, their young married life when they had their children, but may not remember that their family visited them yesterday. And saying that, it's important not to remind them of the things they can't remember because they already feel probably vulnerable. So by saying something like, you know, don't you remember I visited you yesterday? It doesn't benefit them. It doesn't benefit you. It's best just to say, hi, I'm here. You know, let's spend the day together. The big decision as to when somebody should enter residential care, what are some of the signs that maybe time, you know, they're struggling independently to live? It would depend on what I guess is happening at home because some people can live at home for some time but get lost in the community. So it it would be things like they're at a higher risk of harm, meaning that they may go out at 3am and, you know, everyone's looking for them or they've spent the night in the back garden and it's winter. It could be that they're not changing their clothes, not eating well. I think a big one is isolation, Mm -hmm. like not being able to connect with the community like they once would and even with the supports in place, almost being reluctant to do it. There's an American dementia guru, Tipa Snow, and she had said something along the lines of, it's not just one person with dementia, but both have dementia, meaning that the person who was diagnosed has it internally and on the inside, but the people around them are on the outside. So they're living the experience as well, just differently. And so it's important if families are finding they can't cope because they have lives too, they've probably got children, jobs, and they're worried about mum or dad and they can't be there, that might be an indication that it's time to look at more supportive care. I'd like to thank Fran Glamorgan for her insights and also the fabulous and generous Norm Lurie. As I mentioned earlier, Norm has been a volunteer at Montefiore for many years. I asked Norm, what was the most challenging thing he'd ever done as a volunteer at Montefiore? I've had a variety of roles at Monty as a volunteer, even running a bingo session. There's no end to what elderly ladies will do to win a small bar of chocolate. Golden Voices is made with the cooperation of the staff and residents at Montefiore. If you're enjoying this podcast, make sure you rate and review it. It's available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Let your family and friends know about it. Until next time, I'm Rob Caldor. Thanks for listening to Golden Voices. 
This podcast has been produced by eTales.com.au.